Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. I apologize if the intro and outro have a little bit of background noise. I am in a hotel room right now. It's pouring rain outside, uh, and um, and a family must have found out that I was trying to uh, get some quiet to record um, some good audio and decided to uh, that this would be the perfect time to let their children play in the hall. Um, so anyway, today we're going to be talking a lot about uh, neuroscience with Alex Huth. Really great conversation. And um, before that, we didn't we didn't get a chance to record the charity um, beforehand. So he sent me the organization that he wanted. And so now you guys get to hear me um, get up on my high horse and uh, my soapbox and, and give a, a little pep talk. Uh, once again, so the charity this week is the Southern Poverty Law Center. Let me tell you a little bit about what the Southern Poverty Law Center does. They uh, seek justice for the most vulnerable people in society. They monitor hate groups and other extremists throughout the United States and expose their activity to the public, the media, and law enforcement. And they attempt to teach tolerance. They, um, they're dedicated to reducing prejudice, improving intergroup relations, and supporting equitable equitable school experiences um, for the nation's uh, children, as I just got done complaining about children outside uh, my door. Uh, here's the thing, everybody. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, um, you've, you've heard a lot of talk about the, the psychology of of kind of in and out group behavior and sort of these these silly sort of evolutionary reasons for for where a lot of this hate and discrimination comes from all all of this stuff uh, we're not monkeys living in uh living in tribes of of 40 worrying about the other tribe of 40 we're, 
we've we've advanced not not enough yet but we have we've ad, we've advanced we've built these incredible large cities we have the internet where uh millions of people billions can get together communicate with one another i i do feel like we're growing together as a world and we still uh, unfortunately have a lot of um discrimination just to, based on skin color and economic status and any other little differences that that um someone that scared people um can pick up on and i i think uh the majority of this is just due to ignorance a lot of people don't understand what's causing their beliefs and where this is coming from and um and you know the, this is a big part of what this program is about is informing people and getting people to become more mindful. I really do believe that the the more we learn, um, especially about our own behavior, about human nature, about nature in general, um, the better the world that we'll be able to create for ourselves. And the Southern Poverty Law Center is uh, is trying to do just that. And um, as, as someone who tours around um, the South quite a bit, uh, I, you know, there there are there are definitely problems with discrimination that are, uh, uh, I mean, they're mind-boggling sometimes, and and it's also it's also easy to write all of this off as just a bunch of like dumb hillbillies or whatever, but. Um, it, you know, we all have our, our prejudice and biases and this is, uh, I just think people are just misinformed. And I think a lot of this stuff will go away as we educate each other more. Um, these are, this might be my own misperception of, of current events, but it does seem like this is an especially, um, turbulent time, uh, in, in the U S I don't know if it's because of just more news coverage is exposing what was already existing more. Um, I'm not sure, but it does, it does seem like um, racial tensions, economic tensions are exceptionally high right now. But the good news is, is during turbulent times like this, when, when there is a bit of chaos, there's, there's um, also a bit of opportunity for, uh, for creating change and, and reorganizing our society and um, a, a lot of times when things are going kind of quote unquote well and there's lots of law and order and this sort of thing things things don't change and and the people that have it the worst aren't getting heard and aren't getting any attention paid to them and so maybe this is a good opportunity for us to start doing something and making a difference so go and check out Southern Poverty Law Center it's splcenter.org and I hope you guys enjoy the show. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at Berkeley talking with neuroscientist Alex Huth. 
Thank you, Alex, for joining me. Thank you, Shane, for having me on your podcast. Uh, absolutely. I so just some advice to any in case some in case I have teenage listeners by chance, which I've never had teenagers write me. But if you are a teenager deciding where to go to school, go somewhere in California is what I've realized. I just I just got uh, I I just came from Stanford earlier today, which is an amazing campus, and now I'm here at Berkeley, which is beautiful as well i think ours ours might other. be a little bit prettier than Stanford. <laughs> I, I might be biased I don't uh, know. is there a big rivalry with it no no, no not, at all. not at all um and i lived in malibu for a while which has pepperdine right there which is just an amazing um campus so um yeah you go and visit one of those places. parents should take their young kids to these campuses and tell them the importance of studying or to show them the importance of studying um, and then te- take them to the uh, tech school in the Cross, Wisconsin that I did a semester at, and and, and it'll scare them straight. Um, so so what do you do? Uh, what do you do, Alex? What do you work? You do a lot of stuff with language. And- yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, I study how the brain represents. Um, mostly, I've been working on language recently. So how the brain represents the meaning of language, uh, how the activity in our brain reflects the meaning of words that we hear. Uh, I've also been working a bit on vision. So looking at how the, the brain processes visual information and represents uh, what the sort of the meaning of images is. So that's like, what, what things are you seeing? Are you seeing a person? Are you seeing a, a tree? Things like that. Uh, but yeah, late, lately it's been language, which is the focus of a study that I just published a couple months ago. Um, yeah, I saw that. Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, this? is a This is a pretty big deal. It got um, published in Nature, and uh, it looked like some pretty interesting work. It looks like quite an undertaking. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was. So this was about five years in the making. It was about five years from collecting the first data to actually the paper being published. But it was more than that in in actually the you know the time it took to set up this experiment and get it working. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to start with a little background on this. So I, I started sure. as a grad student here in 2008, uh, just before Obama got elected for his first term. So I feel like a sense of deja vu right now that it's like eight years later. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, and then when when I started, I joined Jack Gallant's lab here, uh, and um, he sat me down and said, "I want you to work on this project that's doing this kind of stuff that we do, which is building computational models of how the brain processes information, uh, but do it with language instead of vision, which is what the lab had been working on before." And uh, I said, "Okay, I don't know anything about language. I joined your lab because I wanted to work on vision, but that's that's fine. I can I can work with that." And uh, we, I started doing this, and I um, found a really great collaborator in Wendy Dehir, who was a, a grad student here as well. She graduated um, a little more than a year ago, uh, and we started working on this project in about you know in earnest in 2011. Um, and the the idea of it was actually very simple. What we kind of wanted to do was just record people listening to language, record people just listening to someone talk to them, uh, and see what their brains do. And uh, that turned out to be much more interesting than than you might expect. Maybe we weren't doing any kind of fancy experiment. We weren't having people make decisions. We weren't having people uh, do 
weird tasks in the in the MRI scanner. We were just having them lay in the scanner and listen to stories. Actually, so, yeah, I saw you used the moth. Yeah, um, yeah. Why? What was uh, the decision or the thinking behind that? So that was uh, that was all Wendy. She uh, came up with that idea. Um, we just wanted something that was interesting to listen to and uh, that was. Um, sort of varied in topic so it wasn't always about one thing mm. uh so we we uh we'd sort of played around with different ideas on you know that fit those constraints uh we also wanted it to be all speech and no other sounds uh so that you know we were originally thinking of doing like this american life but then they also have a lot of uh music and other things that are over overlapped with the speech and that made it a little bit trickier to do some of the computational stuff that we wanted to do so we settled on the moth as something that was super interesting to listen to like super engaging uh and just just easy to listen to um and yeah just just a great uh sort of stimulus because it has people talking about all kinds of things in their lives so it's sort of automatically things that are interesting to people and things that are relevant to people's uh you know everyday life which is one thing that we're really going for um so just kind of to keep people's attention more because i I would think to cut out variables you'd just want like a robot voice like saying. yeah so it, it turns out that listening to a robot voice sucks <laughs> yeah. uh it's no it's just don't tell stephen hawking <laughs> that oh sorry stephen uh no it's you don't want something that's boring yeah, right i mean right. if we we want to see what the person's brain is doing when they uh when they understand In real speech. life yeah 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 and we we want it to be interesting we want them to stay engaged because then we get bigger signals out of their brain than if they're not engaged mm. turns out like the yeah just the sort of the size of the response you get is related to how uh to how profound or or invested yeah yeah to you can feel this when you when you listen to things too you know you can tell when you get um when you get deep in something when you sort of when you get absorbed in it you you can feel your your rhythm kind of starts moving along with how how somebody else is talking Hmm. and then uh that that's i think that's kind of the state that we that we wanted to see and you can get that pretty easily with something like the moth how do you know when someone's like how can you tell when someone's focused as opposed to um, say something's either real, really boring or really thought-provoking? In either in either case, I can see like if it's really boring, you start kind of losing attention and daydreaming a little bit. If it's really thought-provoking, maybe maybe you start kind of imagining things and putting together new ideas. So. I, how would you? How can you tell when that's happening? That's that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if the the moth stories that we used are really thought provoking in mm. in that way. It's it's more just sort of engaging. You know, it's it's like an exciting story. You want to hear what happens next always. Which but you can kind of like visualize like a scene. You can, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, so we we asked people how they how they you know thought about the experiment after they'd been scanned and uh, everyone said they were super interested in the stories. Mm. So we we didn't do any sort of formal quantification of that, but we just sort of right. You know, how, how long were they in there for? Uh, so we did uh, two sessions. Each one was about two hours. Mm. So in total, it was um, about four hours of scanning just for the moth part. Um, it ended up being just about a little over two hours of actual stories, but there's a lot of other crap you have to do when you, when you scan people. So there's sort of the time gets padded out by that. Um, in addition to the moth, uh, we had, uh, another 
maybe two or three hour session where we scanned people for other things, all kinds of other localizers. So we look for, say, the motor areas. So we have people lay in the scanner and wiggle their toes, wiggle their fingers, wiggle their tongue, uh, you know, imagine that they're talking, uh, move their eyes around. And then we can see all the motor areas in the brain from that to map that out. We have them look at pictures of faces, so pictures of houses. Of subtract that from the... It's, it's not to subtract. It's just to sort of give us frames of reference, mm, right? Okay. So, so to say, like, this is where the foot area is. This is where the mouth area is. This is where, say, Broca's area is, which actually turned out to be really important for what we're looking at. Um, and then that... Uh, we used the locations of those areas to kind of constrain uh, what we knew about the maps. I can talk about that more later, but that, that was a sort of computational detail. I'm also curious why why uh, two hours seems like a long time. Why why was that um, the time that you picked? So uh, our our previous study we'd done uh, about three hours in the scanner per per session. Um, that was that was pretty brutal, and that was watching. Uh, I was actually watching cut up movie trailers. So it was like ten second snippets out of movie trailers out of order, which is like really god awful to watch. It's you you just you don't want to be there after about five minutes. It's, it's you want like anything but that. Hmm. So uh, after that, the, the stories for two hours was, was easy in comparison. But um, I mean, there's, there's a good reason to have long sessions, which is that uh, each time you take the person out of the scanner and then put them back in, uh, you, you lose some fidelity, you lose some information because the brain is not exactly in the same place anymore. And so you need uh. to then like realign it after the fact, and that ends up blurring the images. Mm. So we want to avoid that as much as possible. So do as few sessions as possible. And for two, three hours is about the upper limit that people can take. So, so before this, going into this, what's, what was some of the, um, what was some of the information that was already, like you mentioned, brokers area, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, that's been known for some time to do have a lot a big player in kind of language processing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there were kind of two classes of things that uh, I think were really well known about language processing and the sort of language system. Uh, one was um, what what I call like general semantic processing. So this is some kind of processing that's related to the meaning of language, uh, the meaning of the words that you hear, and. You can look at this by, say, asking someone to read real words and then asking them to read fake words that don't mean anything and then subtracting those two brain images from each other, right? And then you see a signature of which brain areas you know, respond more when you read real, real words, which means that they're responding to something about the meaning of the words, presumably, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and when you do that, you see that there's um, just a, a boatload of brain areas that are involved in this representation that are doing, you know, doing something that that seems to have to do with meaning of words. Um, but then people would also do these more specific tasks. So have somebody like read um, you know, words for pieces of furniture, words for animals, words for fruit, say. And then you can find that there are particular areas that seem to respond more to one of those categories than the other. Mm. Uh, but that found sort of more limited areas of the brain. So there were only sort of a few patches of, of cortex that really seemed to, um, that were known to respond to like specific types of specific categories of words. Uh, so those were sort of the, our two sources of knowledge. There was the general stuff, which said that it's everywhere, and the specific stuff that said, oh, it's only in these 
few specific places. So uh, I think with with the results of this study that I did, we um, we really kind of bridged those results. So uh, you know, we we took the people listening to the to the moth stories, and we um, then built models of each point in their brain. So so with fMRI, you record these uh, things called voxels. So it's like a three dimensional pixel, a volumetric pixel. Uh, and we built a separate computational model for each voxel in the scan. There's about uh, 50 to 80,000 in the cortex, which is the part of the brain that we were studying. It's like the outer part, the big part. Uh, and we built a model that predicts the response of the voxel based on sort of what's the what's the meaning of the words that they're hearing. You know, what's the topic maybe of the words that they're hearing? What's the semantic content? So are they hearing somebody talk about um, computers? Are they hearing somebody talk about uh, you know, walking down the street or, you know, uh, meeting their husband or wife for the first time, what have you. Um, and then once we had these models, we can go back and ask, you know, what kinds of things would we see elicit responses in this voxel? So what kind of things would drive responses in this particular voxel? Uh, and then we can use that to sort of map out which parts of the brain respond to which kinds of things, right? So what we found was uh, sort of matching the the general results that said that, you know, there's semantic stuff everywhere. Uh, we found semantically related responses everywhere in all these places that people had seen before, right? So, so that, that was sort of a good uh, indication that we'd, you know, hit something that, that, was, that was real. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also saw specificity in these responses. So we saw for, for every voxel that we were modeling, we could see that, you know, this voxel really responds to, uh, say, the names of people or words for people like mother, brother, sister, mm-hmm. aunt, whatever. Um, or, I don't know, numbers or places or colors or all kinds of different things. Right? Uh, so in that way, I think we, we sort of married these two types of results together where we found specificity for certain semantic, uh, we call them semantic domains, um, but we found it everywhere. So it was in all these other places that hadn't really been mapped um, successfully before. Hmm. So it, I, I looked at um, I looked at one of the um, the the three D brain uh-huh. um, that I found off of your website, um, and and I was because it, it seemed to, I was expecting language to be coming out of or being processed in one very small region and it was just all over the place all these different areas i was surprised by so so what are the different categories that that you used um like social and yeah so that was um that was sort of a post hoc like clustering thing so we we took the the words that sort of seemed to elicit the biggest responses in the brain and then clustered them into a few different clusters. And then we had to assign labels to these clusters so that we could talk about them. And so I came up with some labels like these are social words or location words or number words or visual words or tactile words, things like that. It was interesting that even so everything would be color coded. And I'd, I noticed like, for example, the visual words were in like three different places of the brain yeah. kind of by the the temporal lobes or something mm-hmm. if, if i remember right and like one in one in the back of the brain and uh that's that that's surprising isn't it yeah that, that was interesting so that's that's something that you know people have seen hints of this before you know they've looked for uh you know, where sort of vision related words represented or where do they elicit responses uh and they've seen a couple of these things before, but I, I think it's really striking in, in these results that um, 
you know, we see that each category of word or each type of word is not, it's not just one place in the brain that represents it, right? It's not like this idea of the, the whatever, grandmother neuron. Right. Uh, but it's, there are a bunch of places. So it's this like many to many mapping where um, actually each, each category is represented in a bunch of different places in the brain, but each place in the brain also represents not just one category, but many different things. Right. But that's that's not to say that it's just like randomly scattered everywhere. It is very systematic, right? So it's like there there is this map that seems to be the same across all the subjects that we scanned. It says, you know, there if there's an area, you know, in the back of the temporal lobe that represents visual stuff, there's something right above it that represents uh like location words. There's something right next to that that represents number words. And those um those kind of areas seem to be the same across all the people that we scanned. Mm. Is there any kind of um, words that are kind of like synesthetic? Like there's kind of in the in the middle of different categories. That's that's interesting. I'm not sure. We we haven't looked at that really in in detail. Um, we've we've looked for uh, words that are you know, specifically linked to senses, right? So so like we've been talking about visual words. So words that you know really elicit like the that are about how things look. Uh, there are also words that are about how things sound um, or how things feel to touch or how things taste or how they smell. Uh, and we can look for where those words are represented, right? One thing you might expect is maybe they're close to, you know, maybe the visual words are close to visual cortex. Maybe the sound words are close to auditory cortex. That's vaguely true, but like like you said, there's visual stuff everywhere. Right. So so maybe there's a slight tendency for visual stuff to be closer to visual cortex or for the representation that is close to visual cortex to be for sort of visual words. But um, that's not hard and fast. It's not like you uh, understand words describing what things look like only using you know the visual cortex part of your brain. It's it's much more dis- distributed than that. So because because what you're um, measuring is more syntax, is, was there, uh, what, what about words that have two different meanings? Were they represented in two different places? So we, we couldn't really, uh, uh, using our methods, we couldn't really get at that, that specifically, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if there's a word that had multiple meanings, like, uh, I don't know, it's always plant, right? So you have like an industrial plant or like a, like a, tree plant right mm-hmm. um the way that uh sort of what we would find based on um what we would find for that word is actually just some average of them average of those two things so mm-hmm. we, we would you know see some representations in some place and in another place and we we don't really have a way to look at that in, in detail yet mm-hmm. unfortunately yeah i would i would think that maybe you would you, you would have this ideal that it jumps to like if you say the word round, the first thing I think is, is a shape, but you could also say like you're rounding down something, which is kind of a different thing altogether. But yeah. I, I think no matter what, the first thing that I would think is the shape, and then I would have to then infer something else it, after that. It would probably depend on the context, right? If you were uh, If you were talking about numbers and you were talking about fractions and then you said round, you might be you might go first to the to the like mathematical concepts mm. before the shape concepts and that's something that we haven't really built into these models yet there there are computational models that capture that kind of stuff um in fact one of the 
co-authors on this paper, uh, Tom Griffiths, who's a professor here at Berkeley, uh, has worked on those kinds of models that um, sort of infer topics from a set of words and they can get at that kind of information, like saying, you know, oh, you see round. So that means it's either this thing or this thing. And then you see, you know, the word fraction. And that means that it must be the, the numerical context, not the shape context. Mm. Right. Maybe. Um, so, so uh, back to the grandmother neuron, um, just, just for listeners. Um, this is, a, I don't know how you like to explain it, but, but um, this, this is just the idea of there's not like a single neuron in your brain doing, doing a whole function. Um, this came from trying to reduce what the brain was doing and figure out um, smaller and smaller parts of the brain and what they were doing. And, and the thinking was maybe you would eventually be able to get down to like one specific neuron that would be in charge of a certain function or memory or whatever, and that can't be the case because... You can't have every neuron. You can't have enough neurons in your brain to process every grandmother that could exist from every angle, and this this would take just far way more neurons than the brain, or is you know than there is probably atoms in the universe to take every single. Maybe I don't know if there are that many grandmothers exactly. uh, (laughs) So it turns out that there are. jennifer aniston neurons yeah 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 i'm really interested in that that was um i I actually worked in in that lab that was from christoph cox lab at caltech Uh, Ah. i I was there as an undergraduate isn't the sydney opera house one as well oh yeah yeah. that was that was the same study yeah um and that's can you you might be able to do a better job of explaining that Uh, sure so they um this was uh, a really different kind of neuroscience study so they weren't doing fmri which is what i do where you know we put somebody in an mri scanner and then look at blood flow in their brain which is really like crappy indirect measure of what the brain is actually doing uh in in that study they were doing what's called a human electrophysiology so uh how that works is you have people who um, usually have intractable epilepsy. So this is epilepsy that can't be treated with drugs or just the drugs aren't effective. Um, and so what they do is they, uh, they go in and actually open up the person's skull and put electrodes in their brain to try to figure out where the epileptic seizures are starting. Because usually what, what happens with epilepsy is you have one little piece of brain that is, it's called epileptogenic. This is the part of the brain that triggers the seizure. And um, when that piece of brain goes off, then it can start a seizure that takes over the whole brain. Mm. But um, if you take out that one little piece, then you can actually cure people of epilepsy entirely uh, with just removing a small bit of brain. So um, you take people, you uh, neurosurgeon opens their head up, puts in electrodes, and then you wait for them to have seizures. And once they have seizures, you can figure out where the epilepsy came from and then go and take out that part of the brain. Uh, while they're sitting there waiting to have seizures often uh, they'll consent to doing neuroscience experiments just because they're sitting in the hospital not doing anything yeah. really interesting. So they'll do things like uh, look at a bunch of pictures while you just record their neural activity. Right? Um, and so the, there was a study uh, using this technique from, uh, this was from Christoph Koch at Caltech and uh, uh, Itzhak Fried at UCLA. I don't actually remember who the first author was. I think it was uh, either Rodrigo Concroga or... Uh, uh anyway uh everyone here everyone listening is so upset at you right now i for know not being you know to... there's one person this is, is gabriel gabriel Kreiman. uh <laughs> there we go anyway um 
So they, they recorded from neurons in the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's maybe involved in like memory formation, um, while they showed people pictures. And they found kind of surprisingly that there were neurons that responded like really, really specifically to one concept, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that they found, this, this was back in like 2000, I want to say three, maybe when Jennifer Aniston, she was, she was the shit. She was like everywhere, right? Yeah. She was, everything was like, brad and jennifer um whatever and they found this this one neuron that just loved jennifer aniston and it would it would just fire whenever jennifer aniston uh appeared it could be like in a, many different people right uh, no this was just one person oh so but each person is going to have a different set of concepts oh that they, i always thought it was out. different people had the same neuron maybe, anyway maybe there on. were multiple multiple people that had jennifer aniston. i don't know but she was she was hot then i, I doubt that'd be true now i don't know Sorry, jennifer. um <laughs> So, uh, but it, it would fire, you know, a picture of her and this neuron would start responding, uh, her name and the neuron would start responding, uh, just anything related to Jennifer Aniston, mm. uh, and this neuron would just, just fire like crazy. Uh, so this, it seems like this kind of grandmother neuron ish thing where it was like this, this is responding to really this one concept. And they found other ones that responded to like the Sydney opera house. Like you said, um, I think there was like a Taj Mahal one, uh, I don't remember. There, there were other famous people, probably. Um, and this, uh, you know, a lot of people take this as, you know, evidence for the grandmother cell hypothesis. But I, I don't that, that that was never, I think, the intent of this paper. Um, what they want, they wanted to argue was something more subtle, which is often hard to do. in you know, when science gets publicized, it was that the, you know, the brain uses a sparse distributed code to represent information like this, which is language that nobody really understands outside of like deep computational neuroscience. But it means that like each neuron probably responds to a bunch of different things. Uh, they might not be related things. Um, and there's a bunch of neurons that respond to each thing. And uh, when you have that kind of setup, you don't need, you know, a billion neurons to represent a billion ideas. You only need, you know, a few million neurons. Maybe mm -hmm. I, I don't think we can have a billion ideas anyway. So that's not really important. But uh, yeah, so that was that was the kind of idea that I think came out of that is that um, you have this uh, sort of overlapping representations of, of different things, even though they couldn't really uh, do that, maybe. Hmm. Um, so. Um, a couple things, but one with, and I know this isn't your work, but, but I saw, I saw that someone tried to explain that, that, um, it wasn't that it was like necessarily one neuron that was like responsible for processing Jennifer Aniston. It was just kind of that this one neuron was a piece, like an inevitable piece of the kind of puzzle that the yeah. brain's putting together. Yeah. Um, like, like if you killed that neuron would the person not know who Jennifer Aniston is anymore? Probably not. They, they, they'd probably still know. Right, right. right. And the, I was curious, so did you find anything like this related to, to words? Um, any, any particular words that um, in, in your study? Well, I guess you wouldn't find that because you were doing, you were doing the fMRI. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so fMRI is much, coarser right? right so so these voxels that we record from uh in, in this particular study they're like two by two by four millimeters mm -hmm. basically um so this is a little not not quite cubicle block of brain tissue how many neurons would you say are in that space uh, a few hundred thousand to a few million somewhere okay. in that range depending on how you know 
dense the piece of cortex is or how much that overlaps with cortex. Uh, so we don't get that kind of specificity, even if we had really small voxels from which we would get like no signal because fMRI is already garbage at the resolution that we do it. Um, and if you get, if you go to a higher resolution, everything just gets worse. Uh, you're limited because in fMRI, what we're measuring is not neural activity. We're measuring blood flow, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is a whole other ballpark when it comes to, to sort of interpreting things. Uh, so it turns out kind of what, what happens is uh, when neurons become active, they, uh, they need more energy to, to be able to make a bunch of spikes. So they um, call out to the local blood supply and say, like, we need more blood. Uh, and then the blood vessels dilate and the blood supply increases to that area where the neurons were more active. Um, but the sort of the relationship between the two is not that straightforward. So it's not, uh, it's complicated and it's still sort of, people are figuring out what, what the hell is going on there. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious Did so you found that these similar regions would be in, in multiple participants would, would be, there would be blood flow in similar regions to similar categories. Did you find, did you find the same thing with, um, like, if say the word apple would would the same voxel light up in everyone yeah so uh the same part of the brain would light up right right but but we don't have like a matching voxel voxel from person to person because every person's brain is different right Right. Every, every brain is a different size it's a different shape they're folded differently they're they can actually look really different from person to person uh Probably that's only true to neuroscientists who you know care about every single fold on the surface of the brain. But um, they, it's it's hard to say like here's one piece of brain in one subject. How does this you know which piece of brain does this match up to in this other subject? That, that's actually a really hard problem. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that that I kind of wanted to to play with that idea in in this paper. Um, so I came up with this algorithm for trying to match maps from one person to another person uh, without just um so the classical method for doing this is you take the people and you uh take take the people's brains and align them to each other in some kind of space so you can do it just in 3d space so like line them up so that they match as well as possible uh it turns out that kind of stinks for obvious reasons like it, you're not even guaranteed that you know if if you just make it so that, you know the front and back sort of match each other you're not guaranteed that all the edges whatever yeah. it's 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 kind of a mess um there are fancier things that people do with uh um sort of making a 3D model of the brain's surface and then uh, you know, morphing it onto a sphere and then morphing the brains around until the curvature kind of matches up. So you're sort of matching the the ridges and bumps on one brain to the ridges and bumps on another brain. Um, but that's that's really imperfect too when it comes to matching sort of function from one brain to another. So uh, So yeah, that's... It's hard to do, basically, to, to say, like, this one voxel in one person matches this one voxel in another person. But I can say that um, we do we did really seem to find, like, areas in one brain that match areas in another brain, right? So th- there's, like, constellations of areas. So there might be, uh, like, a number area, a visual area, a social area, something in you know, one brain, and then you'd have the same uh, sort of ordering of the areas in another brain. So what happens if someone gets if someone's brain gets damaged in one of these particular areas? That's that's a good question. So so that's actually um that's 
that's like the the classical source of knowledge about, right about this is how, the foundation uh, of neuroscience yeah yeah is something it's like, goes wrong and the behavior changes in a person exactly exactly it's like this is um you know, the, the classical things about language neuroscience are uh, are paul broca and uh, carl wernicke in the late 19th century found these you know, two patients where that had brain damage and one person couldn't talk one person couldn't hear and then that sort of gave rise to what we know about you know a lot of theories about the language system came came from those two those two results, uh, and there have been you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, of neuropsychological studies. So that's you know, looking at how brain damage affects language uh, function since then, and um, that's really interesting because that's actually uh, one of the big sources of I think pushback I've gotten in this paper is from neuropsychologists who say like this just doesn't match what we've seen. Mm-hmm. which uh, I think is really interesting because, you know, we, we see that there are these representations that they're really consistent across people. They, you know, really seem to be specific to certain uh, categories of words, say, but um, you don't just, just lose a category. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't lose a representation right. of that thing. If you lose that piece of brain, maybe it's just incredibly flexible. Maybe it is. That's possible. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, we have redundant representations, right? Like, the visual stuff is represented in a bunch of places. Maybe if you lose one, you don't lose everything, right? Maybe you can make up mm-hmm. for that. Maybe you can make up for it with the other hemisphere, right? So that, that was actually something, another thing that we found uh, in the study that was really interesting, kind of different from some earlier results, uh, was that um, all these representations are really symmetric from left and right. So we, we didn't really see much concentration of language stuff in the left hemisphere, which is one of the classic stories of how language is organized in the brain. Mm. Um, I was a couple things. One, did people respond to, um, respond differently to say like a command or a question or anything? That's a super good question. And, uh, we haven't looked at that at all, right? These were stories. Cause so... I, w- I would think even in a story, they'd be, sometimes they, they would think like, well, what would you do in this situation as like a question and some. I, I don't yeah, know. Maybe, maybe yeah. that just never came up in a story at all. I, I don't know if it did. That that would be interesting. But I mean, there were definitely no commands like right. to the listener. Uh, but th- that's actually something that I've been thinking about recently. I think mm. that would be really interesting to pursue. I, I know there there are other like neuro linguists who definitely look at this, and I, I don't know that much about the literature. But I think it's a really and have you have you had people um, have you had people uh, instructed people to talk or whatever and, and it. Is the same are the same regions being um, being used for speech basically? So um, we've uh, we've just started another study now where we have people telling stories in the in the scanner. Uh, it does look like a lot of it is very conserved. Yeah, and there, there was a there was a study that came out also a couple of years ago from uh, Uri Hassan's group at Princeton where they um, they actually had one person tell a story in the scanner while having their brain recorded. And then they played that story back, that recording back for other people while they were getting their brain scanned. And they compared the brain responses in the people who were listening to the story to the person who was telling mm. the story, uh, which I thought was, I think it's beautiful and super clever. Um, and uh, they found that in, in a lot of these parts of the brain where we have like you know, these good models that fit and tell us that there's semantically specific stuff going on, they found synchronization between the speaker and the listener, which, which means it is probably the same in the, mm. in the speaker as well. Um, there were some really interesting things there, though. They they found that there were a couple brain regions where um, where the speaker's brain is ahead of the listener, 
right? So it's like you get some brain activity and then maybe a couple seconds later you see the same thing happening in the listener, right? Which totally makes sense, mm -hmm. right? You're like, you're thinking something, you say it, then the, the other person like hears it and then they think that thing, right? So you have this sort of lagged activity. But they also found some brain areas where uh, the responses in the listener led the responses in the speaker. So this is where the the listener was predicting what was going to happen in the speaker's brain, mm. essentially, which is super interesting. And I, I don't really know what to make of that. But uh... um, well, I'm I'm curious. Going back to um, uh, go, going back to what would happen if if the area were damaged? Wouldn't wouldn't it be testable just to what's the um, uh, what's the name of the thing that just like paralyzes a region for? A smart, a very small amount of time. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, there's there's TMS. Yeah. Which is the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yeah, yeah. Parts of in the future, brains. would you be able to do that on a region and see if there was some sort of effect? And in... yeah, uh, TMS fucking terrifies me, so I'm I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, that that would be that would be a thing you could do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and the the reverse is if you can artificially stimulate. Um, like uh, say, it, well, it's curious to me that that people that take um, like psychedelics will often experience similar hallucinations. Like, yeah. there's often reported similar like audio hallucinations. Uh -huh. Like a wow, 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 wow is a common one. Or the like mandalas visual. Yeah, things. yeah. Or, and uh, there's there's the do you know about the machine elves and DMT? Oh yeah, I, I do a lot of DMT actually. Yeah, yeah. And um, I uh, I totally had the machine elves the one time I tried DMT. Uh, oh really? Yeah. It's I like I haven't seen the machine me. elves, but I've seen lots of other things. Mm -hmm. And um and there is this and there is this. Well, um, a part of that might be like suggestion too. I definitely heard about that idea before I did it, which yeah, that's dangerous. I yeah, there's, there's of no course. Randomized control studies on on DMT exactly. I know. I saw this purple woman uh, who now I see all the time, but I didn't really think <laughs> I didn't think much of it. Um, not all the time. I mean, on DMT, like yeah. I don't see her regular <laughs> life now. Um, and I didn't tell. I I told my friends, and then I went and I. Um, gave dmt to someone else without describing anything for exactly that reason i didn't want mm -hmm. to influence them and i'd never heard of a purple woman and um and then they saw a purple woman um as oh. well and described yeah. her exactly the same way that i did and which is it was like that's, very, that's wild yeah, yeah it's very like like right down to uh having two ropes across her that have these diamond shapes with codes in them oh my god yeah um right. so <laughs> but if similar parts of the brain are processing, I mean, because it was like the spookiest thing, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. But if similar parts of the brain are used, are recruited in interpreting um, similar visual or audio stimulation, couldn't that very well be if, if it just goes in reverse if it's art if those parts of the brain are artificially stimulated um isn't it possible that uh you know i mean certainly a dancing purple woman that looks is like very specific and crazy but just something as simple as just like a wow 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 kind of a yeah. sound um it it seems like that could be artificially stimulated and and Almost yeah. reproduced, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, with, I mean, with, I know we're probably getting away from no, your no, work I, and everything. I think this is super interesting. Uh, so with with drugs, it seems like it's kind of tricky because uh, we, for one, we just don't know a lot about how psychedelics work. I mean, we, we kind of know like what what they bind to, what um, you know. So what about like Charles Benet syndrome, where it's happening naturally in in blind people, where blind people are having visual hallucinations what what is this i don't know about this oh it's uh so if, if people that are oliver Sacks wrote about it in um mind's eye mm-hmm. um it's it's when um people i believe it's only people that used to used to see mm-hmm. and then at some point go blind and they um and they sometimes have like these and most of them describe them as being exceptionally boring like very trivial kind of they'll just all of a sudden have this visual hallucination of like someone walking up and down stairs or something like that. And his, his take on it was that, um, the, the brain doesn't want to let itself atrophy. Like if you're going to park a car for a year, you want to fire up the engine once in a while and make Mm -hmm. sure everything's going through it. So, so it's artificially, the brain's artificially stimulating itself to, to keep everything, keep the oil flowing yeah know, yeah I, that's that's a totally sensible hypothesis yeah so so one of the um i mean one of the very basic things about how like brain chemistry works is uh homeostasis like you your brain always kind of wants to stay in the same state mm-hmm. um so like each neuron wants to fire so many action potentials per hour say right and it's like if they fire too few then they'll change a little bit of how they you know process their inputs maybe like change the threshold a little bit so that they fire more if they fire too many then they'll sort of pull it back a little bit and fire fewer uh so i can totally see that leading to like if you have a visual mm-hmm. cortex that's under stimulated because you don't actually see anymore then totally it could ramp up its uh sort of intrinsic activity it's almost like tolerance for yeah yeah natural no, tolerance i mean this this is like the source of mm-hmm. you know uh all kinds of drug tolerance say right so uh right. if if you're uh if you're an alcoholic, then you um, drink a lot of alcohol, which suppresses neural activity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then your neurons learn to cope with that suppression of, of activity by sort of increasing their baseline firing rate mm-hmm. um, so that when you have that increased baseline combined with like the suppression of alcohol, things are kind of normal. Uh, and then if you stop drinking, suddenly like all your neurons are firing way too much and you can have seizures and die. And that's what delirium tremens is. This is like acute alcohol uh, withdrawal is basically your neurons become way too active because uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, the same thing happens at a smaller scale, like with a hangover, right? I don't know if you get this. I definitely get this where um, when I get hungover, I get really jittery and like unable to, to sleep. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't have that. Fortunately, have that? I know oh. people like that get the shakes and stuff sometimes and, yeah, this is, I'm not saying like, I'm not drinking super heavily here. This is just yeah, like yeah. after a night of drinking, I, I right. often like sleep really poorly. And I I, mm-hmm. I assume this is the same thing that it's like uh, you're suppressing neural activity for a long time and then your neurons sort of learn to cope with that. And then when that goes away, you have this sort of, oh, I see. everything is, is a little too strong. Everything's a little too bright after mm. that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, I, I, so, sorry to kind of get off track with drugs. I'm just very <laughs> interested in psychedelics and I've just had, so I, I have a show about it that I do and stuff and that. And, uh, and so, so yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me, but, but, um, the other thing is, so one, uh, let me get into it this way. What is, 
What's the importance of a study like this? Why do you want to know what regions process certain words? You know, who, who care? Like, what does that, uh, what does that help? I, I already know some of these answers. I'm just like setting up a, sure, sure. So, in the uh, weirdest way possible. <laughs> uh, I mean, in general, it's like we, we want to understand the brain, right? We want to understand how the brain processes the world around us. Right. And that, that means, um, you know, to a to a computational to a neuroscience with a computational bent like like me, that means building models of mm-hmm. uh, that you know predict what the brain is going to do in different situations. And uh, one of the most you know uniquely important, uh, uniquely human sort of important things that we do is uh, language. Is we we produce language, we listen to language. So can we predict what the brain is going to do while you're listening to language? That was that was one sort of high level question that we were trying to answer here. Um, but just saying yes is not really satisfying. So it's like, what can we say about the brain? What can we say about how the brain is organized um, based on that information? Uh, and that's that's really what we we got out of this study. But um, sort of going back to something you said earlier, where you were you said you were surprised that it wasn't just like one area that was responding to mm-hmm. language, right? That it was everywhere. And I think that um, that's a really kind of fundamental feature of of this study and of like studying language in general. I think that language is a, uh, is a gateway. It, it lets you get into all kinds of other cognitive processes. Right. Yeah. Like why, why is it that one category is located in this one particular region? Is that, is that like if you're, if you're hearing about say someone's telling a story about doing, doing a marathon is, is that, going to be near a, a region of your brain that is um, in control of motor functions as, as well? I, Are there connections like that? That kind of... A, a bit. So that's that's one of the, maybe the only really like big theory of, of semantic representation. It's um, called by various names, it used to be called embodied cognition, which is the idea that like you understand the word, uh, say, kick using your motor cortex, mm-hmm. right? The, this ties into the idea of mirror neurons, that you have neurons. Like when you see someone doing something like kicking a ball, you have the same neurons in your brain are active for that. Some of the same neurons in your brain are active for that as when you actually go to kick a ball, say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this is related to like how we understand the concept of kicking. So if somebody just says the word kick or says the phrase like kick a ball, then that activates some of the same neurons that would be active if you saw someone do it or if you yeah. did it yourself, whatever. Monkey see, uh, monkey do. Exactly, we we are monkeys. Um, but this this I don't know this theory it's it's gotten it's gotten really complicated lately. Like there's some people who are really pushing this sort of hardline embodiment. Um, now wait, they rebranded it. It's it's called a grounded cognition now for what that's worth. Uh, but but a lot of people don't really buy into this or buy into some more like hybrid model which says that okay some of that happens but also there's a lot of stuff you know that's related to like hearing the word kick that is not you know directly tied to like motor activity or visual mm. activity or anything like that yeah because is this related to um uh, this this idea that a lot of um a lot of our language um has these like weird kind of physical metaphors like you can call someone cold mm-hmm. or or distant even even if they're right next to you someone someone can be distant or you can call someone bright or like getting 
feeling up or like getting high or whatever has a certain, it, you know, it's grounded in this physical reality. Um, mm-hmm. whereas it, and, and, and like feeling low and that, and then you can almost extend that too to like the idea of, of why is heaven up in yeah, people's sure, mind and sure. hell is, hell is down. Yeah. And, so, so maybe the world's expert on exactly that thing is George Lakoff here at Berkeley. Uh, he's written, got like a dozen books on this topic mm. uh and we've had a lot of interesting conversations about you know how these ideas of of metaphor that he is really uh responsible for a lot of the modern thought on metaphor um how those map into the into the brain and into the kind of data that we have uh the relationship is is complicated and we don't have a clear answer yet um we haven't really looked specifically for things like uh you know so he defines like different types of metaphor um uh, and we we haven't looked at those specifically in this data, and that that ends up being really tricky because it's not easy to like pull out to find metaphor computationally, right? So you have to go through by hand and tag everything, and that that sucks, and that's something we try to avoid doing whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been working with some people in Berkeley here to try to get some say stories that are already tagged with metaphor information, but um, we haven't gotten really good results out of that yet. Um, because isn't the idea that that kind of this language stuff is real fancy that we're doing and it, mm-hmm. it probably evolved fairly uh, quite a bit later in our, our evolution or, or the, the wiring for it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of had to be built on top of something like we were sure. sensing things far before we could articulate them but, with language. I, mean, I, I don't think, I don't think you need to make an evolutionary argument for that. I think you can just make like a developmental argument, right? That you, you know what, it means for something to be bright, like for a light to be bright before you understand the concept of what it means for a person to be bright. Hmm. Right. And that I think we, we, right. we learn physicality. We learn uh, sort of how the world works before we learn more abstract things. And I think maybe that sort of trajectory is more important than the evolutionary one. Uh, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, I never heard that take on it. Um, yeah, that's uh yeah, that's a cool idea. It, it, very, very simple. It, it, obviously, when you're two, three, your your understanding of of not only words but concepts is is very simple and limited. Maybe, um, maybe more literal. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not right. True. Um, so I'm, I'm not around many three year olds. Um, me too. Thankfully, sorry, three year olds. Um, I have a lot of three year old listeners. Um, I uh, so. So what's interesting to me about this work is is that you could eventually map every part of the brain. Um, yeah, then, then that, we're done. That right? is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then, yeah. Then we can pack it up, and we don't have to sift through data anymore. And but, but you could you could eventually um, you could eventually read people's minds, essentially, right? Why, why stop like, there? We we should just simulate people once we've mapped their brains. Right? That's, <laughs> That's where I really want to go. No, I, uh, I think maybe like the, we are a simulation. Oh shit! It's turtles all the way down. Oh my god! Uh, no, re- reading minds, I think is uh, is it's a fun like parlor trick. It, it's something that people like to see because it's like a sort of proof of concept that's very concrete that this right. that this technology works that it does what we you know say it does. Um, and it's it's cool too. I mean, so we're working on that and getting like decoding working with this. So can we just record somebody's brain while they're listening to something? Maybe while they're saying something in their head. Uh, we'll can we figure out what they were saying from that? We, we've done some preliminary stuff. It turns out that um, 
what your brain does when you're just like talking in your head, mm -hmm. uh, the signals you get from, from that are much bigger than the signals you get from listening to something. Really? Yeah, yeah, which kind of surprised us because with, with uh, vision, it's totally the opposite. So with vision, it's the signal you get from actually looking at something is much bigger than you get from imagining something. Hmm. But at the same time, uh, you know, we, we can actually talk and we can't like project images from our eyes. Right. So I, I think... Is the, that part of the reason why it's so, why, why attention span is, is so difficult? Like if you're sitting in a class, for example, or I'll be listening to a book and the book makes me think of some idea. Next mm -hmm. thing I know, five minutes have gone by. And is it just, because that's a stronger, like thinking of a thing is kind of a stronger... I think it kind of has to be, right? Yeah. If it wasn't, then we would be kind of zombies, right? We'd be like right. slaves to whatever we're we're listening to if somebody starts talking then you just can't you can't like stop stop right. listening and think your own thoughts that'd be that'd be nightmarish well so because it's stronger does wouldn't that make doesn't that make mind reading that much easier maybe yeah. um and yeah. well because <laughs> like terrifyingly well, yes. well well what about the um uh what is it als or whatever where oh yeah, yeah, yeah. where yeah. i've seen i mean and this is years and years ago. I remember mm -hmm. seeing something. I don't know if it was like sixty minutes or something like that, um, where they would kind of show someone pictures of like um, uh, apple and a horse, and like have them really concentrate and map specifically what parts of the brain were thinking. And then later on, they could go back and have that person concentrate on that word and be able to determine what they were wanting at that time. Like they wanted a horse. Why would you teach them every a horse? Person with you want to be very careful with right like, yeah. what, what words specifically you concentrate on. Yeah, yeah. Like um, painkillers, bedpans, please. No, yeah. I, you know, so that's, I mean, um, I... I guess I was I was a little glib when I said that this is a parlor trick because that that is something that we we often pitch this technology as maybe it, right. it could really help people's lives if, yeah. if they have like uh, communication disorders that make it very hard for them to to actually speak maybe we can fix that mm. uh, you know some people with ALS people with locked in syndrome uh, maybe people who uh, have uh, other kinds of communication disorders like autism that would be really interesting although uh, difficult maybe to, to scan people with autism for a long time. Mm. Um, we're actually starting a project also to, uh, to actually scan uh, people with autism on these same, listen to these same stories and map out their brains and see how, uh, uh, see if the maps are any different in autism, see how they're different, mm. uh, which is already a little bit interesting. So, yeah. Um, what are, what are you finding? I haven't really had anyone, autism gets met and it's like you know such a big deal yeah, these yeah, yeah. days and every everything and i haven't had anyone on specifically talking about autism mm -hmm. so i just get these little bits and pieces sure, here sure. and there so, so i'm i'm not an expert on autism by any right. stretch uh we're working with uh ralph adolph's at caltech who is an expert and is just an amazing guy i love this guy he was he was like one of my favorite professors when i was an undergrad and now we're working together and i i love it uh, but, um, so we, we scanned a couple subjects and, uh, you know, one of the things you might expect sort of a priori is that so a lot of people talk about autism as a social processing dysfunction. So mm -hmm. maybe people with autism are worse at processing social information. Maybe they, uh, have smaller representations of social information in their brain. So like social information is the biggest thing that we saw in these maps. I didn't mention that before, but like information about other people, it turns out that that's just the most important thing that you do is think about other people. And about their relationships and so on. 
uh, it turns out there's huge amounts of brain devoted to that and we're probably really good at that and that's basically what humans are built to do I think um, but maybe people with autism less so uh, that is definitely not the case or at least in the data that we've seen so mm. far um, maybe even more so so that's that's interesting and bizarre. Wait, wait. So, so they have more social functioning. This, this is super, super preliminary. Uh, they definitely don't have less, or at least the, okay. the preliminary data that we've seen so far. Hmm. So, um, well, that's very interesting. You have so much exciting stuff here. A thousand, like a thousand years from now, um, whatever we evolve into is going to be able to like control minds because of your <laughs> because of your your work right totally. now sweet sweet the, the lizard people yeah they'll, they'll get us one day um, um the uh well it, it, do you have what's your what's like your most exciting thing that you're looking forward to and say the the next five years five years five years is tricky i think like longer term is actually easier because mm-hmm. uh longer term i just want something better than fmri Mm. fMRI it's it's great in a lot of ways it sucks in a lot of ways if we had you know just we need we need better techniques we need the physicists to go do physics and figure out how to actually measure things from the brain uh that are better than blood flow because blood flow is terrible Mm. so that's maybe not five years but in the next 25 years i really like sincerely hope that we have something better than fMRI or cognitive like neuroscience is just going to be human neuroscience is going to be hosed if we if we don't right uh in the next five years um i don't know one thing uh i really want to do is uh try to just just go go bigger right so this was a few hours of stories from a few subjects can we get a few hundred hours of stories from a few subjects can we have people listen to not just stories but also maybe play games while uh uh you know talking to someone Mm. so you're like communicating with someone with the purpose of like solving a puzzle or playing a game or something like that i think that'd be really interesting uh uh, you know exploring other kinds of communication like you you asked about questions or commands Mm. earlier i think it'd be really fascinating to look at how how different those are um even even like i would think singing would be different and and like kind of intent like whispering and yelling would all be somehow processed a little bit differently perhaps yeah yeah no totally it's especially uh yeah on the production side that would be interesting although it's it's hard to have people talk in the scanner and not mm. create terrible artifacts that make everything else very hard i see but uh yeah uh well very cool well thank you so much for your time and joining yeah, me this um, is really fun yeah and um uh, thank you all for for listening and being such wonderful inquisitive curious people i'll talk with you next week Hey everybody, I have something I'm kind of excited about. You may have seen me post about this if you follow me on my Twitter, uh, at Shane Comedy, or my Facebook fan page, um, which is facebook.com slash Shane Comedy Fan. Just a reminder, I also have a Facebook personal page that I don't use, so if you're following that one and you don't ever see posts from me, it's because you're not on the fan page. Unfortunately, Twitter only allows you to have 5,000 fans, and so you need to have a fan page, and then you need to use the fan page you need to (laughs) 
you need to have a personal page. It's it's ridiculous. Um, so sorry for the confusion there. Anyhow, uh, you may have seen me posting about a new item that I have for sale. I am so we were talking about DMT in the podcast. I actually made some i didn't make them i had them made by a wonderful artist um, actually what happened was a fan came to a show and made me a uh a leather bracelet with um it came to one of my psychedelic shows brought me a leather bracelet with uh with, with um some lsd stamps and other really cool design and i was so blown away by it that i had them make me a wallet with um the the um the one here we are design with the eye. If you've seen that, a little different than the regular logo. I use it on Facebook and stuff quite a bit. And I was so blown away that I wanted to make have him make something for fans. So I have DMT keychains for sale. It's a stamp of the DMT molecule, and um, and it says "Have a good trip." And to me. They're a, uh, they're just a fun little, um, kind of inception like totem to, that reminds me to kind of keep questioning everything and keep questioning the nature of reality and just reminds me of how interesting, um, life can be and how much more there is to learn. At least that's what I tell myself. That's my pitch. Um, anyway, as it is right now, but they look, they're so cool. They're all handmade. Each one is, is different. I have five, five different colors on there right now. And they're not, they're just, um, basically categories of color. Each one, they're not made in a factory or anything. They're each handmade by lost sailor designs, design rather, um, out of Portland. And, um, awesome guy Braden Jasper made them for me, and so they're available on my site. I'll even sign the back of them if if you want. So if you go to Shane Moss M A U S S dot com and click on store, um, it's my first online store. Everybody, um, I've I've never liked selling things on the road. I haven't sold stuff on the road in years. A lot of times, it's kind of embarrassing to be peddling your wares and whatnot, and and you do it because um, we're, we're comics are poor. Basically, we're all starving artists. And uh, but this is like an awesome thing that I I thought actually looked really cool and something that I wanted for myself. So I thought other people would as well. And it's actually gotten an amazing response on Facebook. So that's super cool. Um, so I'll sign the back for you and put a little message on there if you like as well. Um, I have a form when you go to purchase it where you can write what you want me to write to you. And, um, so I hope you're interested. All of, all of the money that I make off of these, I am going to, um, spend on marketing my fall tour, my, uh, about psychedelics, a good trip with Shane Moss. And um, actually, speaking of that, why don't I just pull up a little update uh, for you? So everything's going slower than expected um, as far as locking down some of the dates, but it's definitely happening, and it's looking to be about 60 cities. Let me tell you what I have lined up so far. Starting in October, we're going to head east from L.A., 
going to stop through. Um, and, and by the way, there's going to be cities in between some of these as well um, that just aren't 100% confirmed. But going through Phoenix, um, Arizona, Norman, Oklahoma City, just outside of uh, o- Norman, Oklahoma, just outside of Oklahoma City, um, Dallas, Houston, Austin's to be announced soon, Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans being announced soon, Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, Florida. And by the way, you can go on shanemoss.com and um, check out I, on the top, it's a good trip tour. Um, I still have a schedule tab up there, but I made a separate, um, I'm, I'm trying to build out a separate page for this tour. So check that out. Pensacola, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, Atlanta, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Charlotte, Raleigh, Richmond, Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Alston, Massachusetts, um, just outside Boston, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio, Fort Wayne, Chicago, Madison, La Crosse, Minneapolis, Billings, Spokane, uh, Washington, um, That's and uh, Tacoma, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle, um, working on lining up Portland as we speak, um, Salem, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, um, perhaps Bend as well, um, Humboldt, California, and then I'm actually, so it's kind of making a loop around the outside of the country and everything's going, been going together really well. So I think we're actually going to make another small loop through the middle of the country, stopping through places like Denver and St. Louis. I, I don't have all of that will be in December. We just decided to add that. I don't have those dates up yet, but they will be coming soon. I'll keep you guys updated. Please keep checking back. And um, maybe you don't want to forget to check back. You can join my mailing list at, um, I, I believe you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website or you can go to shanemoss.com. And um, I've never, I think I've sent out one mass email in my career and so the second one's going to be for this tour so you don't have to worry about me spamming me all the time and all of that um and so join that mailing list and if i see all of you people on this mailing list then i don't have to give seven minute long (laughs) spiels after um after my podcast um all the time um i'm i'm just very excited for this tour so i'm going to be plugging it a bit more i'm sure you understand i'm sure you're excited to hear your city on there lots more cities coming if you didn't hear yours don't worry if you're in the continental united states i will be within four hours of you at some point if not much much closer than that i'm going to be stopping through like i said 60 plus cities very excited. Um, tune in next week. I am, again, not quite sure. I have a few recorded. Not quite sure which one I'm going to put out. So um, we get to all be surprised together. Um, I'm Tomorrow I'm going to record my live podcast. That's going to be coming out in a month or so. Episode 100. Um, exciting. Very exciting stuff. So, yeah. Um, Thanks for listening, guys. All all of you that listened to the end, of course, you're my favorite. I mean, you hung in there. We did eight eight and a half minutes. That's a 
that's a record. We're we're gonna I, maybe I'll take a little break from it next week and cut down on on the advertising um, a little bit. I'm just super excited about these new keychains and all of the new dates. Lots more to come. If you do want to pick up a keychain, um, or two, <laughs> I I will uh, be forever grateful. I'm I'm going to need um, I'm going to need like four thousand dollars just for advertising the first um like 10 dates of the tour or so um so and i am as broke as it gets not quite but i am broke uh so so that would be incredibly beneficial um but you know whatever i feel i feel weird asking um selling selling stuff uh, to you guys, it's supposed to be a non-profit show, but I do think that's uh, a really cool merch item, and I'm working on getting some stuff together specifically for uh, the Here We Are podcast merch that should be coming really soon as well. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll talk with you guys next week. <laughs> See you then. I'm just blabbing on for too long now. All right, bye. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype and that he has come for his cocaine. As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.